All right, welcome to another episode of Cyber Patterns. Today we have Richard Socheron, the founder and CEO of U.com, the search engine you control. Richard previously started and sold a company. He also loves paramotoring and photography. This is a really fascinating conversation with one of the brightest minds in tech. Hope you enjoy. Cool. So I think a lot of my listeners um, won't know what you is yet. Um, are we? Are we? Are we jumping right in? Yeah. Let's let's jump right okay. in. Cool. I mean, right. might as well. Awesome. Um, so if you could, uh, if you could describe what you is, how would how would you do that? Uh, I feel like I'm saying you so many times, but um, and why did you start you? <laughs> Yeah, uh, U.com is a new search engine, uh, some kindness uh, for us internally, uh, and it's a search engine that you control. What does that mean? You control your privacy, you control your sources, uh, you can actually contribute to it through an open platform, uh, which is especially relevant for, for developers, and uh, it's a, a search engine because you can control it, helps you save time, save your privacy, and give you control over your information diet. Got you. And um, so what's wrong with current search engines out there? What's wrong with the algorithmic search engine? Um, I mean, I hate SEO stuff. So is that part of it? Yeah, that's right. So the beautiful thing is once you control your search engine, that gives us multiple uh, ways to improve current search. So one, of course, there are too many ads on Google. That's one thing. Uh, but then even after you try to block the ads or you scroll past the ads, you'll see SEO microsites. And it's because you don't control the search engine. The search engine just wants to funnel you these days to the highest bidding advertiser. And sometimes that advertiser isn't directly in the search results. The advertiser comes in after you click on one of those SEO microsites uh, and then you click on ads right there. Uh, and so like these SEO microsites are just trying to funnel a Google uh, either SEO or direct ad into another ad from like Amazon or something where you then also search for stuff and see mostly like ads nowadays. So, so these SEO sites are essentially second order effects uh, of the advertising world uh, and the privacy invading world. And so once you're in control of your search engine at you.com, you can also actually just download certain sources because sometimes, you know, CNET and uh, PC mag and so on. They do have interesting and useful content, right? And some people like it. Some people like Geeks for Geeks or W3 School. It comes up very high in a lot of search engines. Some people viscerally hate W3 School and they, you know, on you.com, they can just vote down on it and then it will update uh, in their, in their, in the AI and the ranker, they have control over it and then they see it less. And so to us, putting user back in control of search actually solves a lot of the fundamental issues uh, of, of search, of privacy invasion, losing a lot of time based on getting stuck in engagement loops, SEO ads, and so on. Now, you know, ads are complex. Like we probably will have to get private ads at some point, similar to DuckDuckGo, uh, just to be able to survive and then run a search engine. But we want to make sure that they always stay private and commit to never doing targeted ads and stuff similar, um, and basically share some of the privacy ideals uh with with DuckDuckGo. Yeah. So 
similar to Brave in that sense, where they have private network of advertisers? You know, yeah, like I think, you know, Brave is, is all about crypto and, and the bat token and, and otherwise like it's a it's a really great uh, Chromium uh, browser. And and yeah, we, we don't have any crypto currencies right now. We don't kind of have accounts for you know people's cryptocurrencies and, and stuff like that. You can use the private mode of, of you.com without any logins and things like that. Got you. Got you. So Likewise, uh, the ads are completely private too. Yeah. So when I, I, I think from like a crypto lens, just because I'm, that's where my full-time job is and all my, a lot of my writing, not all of it, but um, when you were saying that people could plug in kind of different APIs into the search engine, it just reminds me of almost like a composable protocol. And I'm wondering if you could explain more about that and, and how people can do that and um, what use cases there are. Yeah. Great, great question. So uh, there, there's so many use cases. It's actually really exciting. Uh, can I share my screen? Yeah, let me. Uh, let's. I feel like this should it should be automatic to let people sc share screens or not in the advanced option. So I agree. If you could yeah. fix that too, that'd be great. So, while you're <laughs> so, fixing the world. So here, here you see if you go to u.com/apps, uh, you actually see all the different apps that you can like. And you know, some people love Reddit, other people. Uh, like Twitter, I have to like both. Um, and you know, there, there are all these different apps that that people will like and that they can set the preferences for. And we actually have now started uh, to have external apps. So here, and it's the first version, still a lot more, you know, better, better, never done. Search is kind of uh, a pretty interesting and exciting and tough problem. But you kind of see here, if you look for best headphones, for instance, there's a what HiFi app uh, that has like useful summaries that we generate for people, uh, and you know this is actually currently just their affiliate link, so they should be happy um, with just us hosting their app for now. Um, and and then you have Loria app. Loria is a new startup, uh, and they actually use large language models and AI to summarize uh, user reviews from thousands and thousands of reviews. And then, uh, you know, on, and star ratings and everything. And then they basically generate these, these AI uh, powered summaries and do price comparisons. And so to me, this is kind of a really useful app, you know, best for over the ear headphones, best for gaming, best for most wireless and so on. And to me, this is like a really great example of an open platform app. So in that sense, we actually are uh, very inspired uh, by uh web three ideas uh where we basically want to collaborate with people want to be much more open and we want people to benefit when they contribute so when you build an app like luria uh you can actually have uh like also revenue generation like you know the links when they do price comparison for you probably their affiliate links uh and and that should be mutually beneficial so so here's another example for, for developers. You know, if you look for Python Fibonacci direct computation, we have a Stack Overflow app, which I already like. And so it comes up a lot and you have the code for it. And then there's a copy and paste button and then boom, you know, you're done. And you compare that to your old search engine, you're like, well, it's a lot of blue links, a lot more blue links, a lot more blue links. I know it's just like, it's not useful here. You have like the useful things. You see the code right here. There are different ways, you know, some with a lot of comments, others with very few comments. Uh, you can read up on them uh, directly here about 
more complex, uh, you know, things. If you want to read up on sort of details, you have videos, you have GitHub repositories uh, and, and GitHub issues. So, and you have archive papers. And if the archive paper has like an open source implementation and you just see right away that open source implementation on GitHub, uh, and you know, like you compare, and then you understand why why we're growing uh, and why people like us. It's just you save time ultimately, and the more time you spend, matters to use one that wants to actually help you save your time. Yeah, the guys at Google must hate you, man. <laughs> no. You know, uh, <laughs> I I mean, it's a it's a trillion dollar market, and and they're making so much money from invading everyone's privacy and everything. That uh, I I don't know if we're that much of a threat yet, but I have heard that um, they are working on copying some of our features. So uh, yeah. I'm sure that will happen in the next year or so. Yeah, they're so dependent on ads, though. That yeah, I like the idea of a private network, though, especially if you're if you're focused a lot on developers and, and coders. You know, you could kind of tailor it. But um, yeah, so it's permissionless to build an app on it on you. Is not yeah. So we actually we thought a lot about could we put this all on some you know blockchain and so on. And it's actually unfortunately not like the technology isn't ready yet for search in in some fundamental way in the sense that in search everything has to be in hundreds of milliseconds. Like it just can't. It, you can't wait for you can build the best search in the world, some massive AI like write stuff. Wait if it takes ten seconds to get your results no one no one will use your search engines so speed is, is absolutely crucial and so right now we have to serve a lot of those things still and it's still uh more centralized now we are very open and excited to see the technology progress and then distribute this more and more ultimately i can even see us eventually like open sourcing more and more of our own apps uh, that will probably happen very soon and maybe even eventually distribute everything uh, in a much more sort of decentralized way so that people, you know, again, it's a search engine you control, you know, we're building uh, this together with, with a larger and larger community. So there are lots of, lots of ideas I love about it, uh, but right now you can allow people to just submit an app to us. They can build a little configuration, have a connection to some APIs and then like launch an app and, if we had built that on a different stack than the one we currently have, it probably would have taken us a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Got you. And yeah, I just love the idea, even of um, like, say, say I was a developer and I wanted to build an app for myself, just like having my own personalized kind of search engine is what we should all have. Like, I, you know, you're definitely right about that. And it's, um, you know, uh, down the line, it's, it's cool. I am curious, um, kind of just because like this isn't related totally to you, but more just you're a smart guy. Um, curious what your thoughts are on like the state of crypto right now, and and if you're into it at all, or um, you know what's what's kind of your head state. Yeah, I I dab a little bit in it. Uh, I love I love certain aspects of it philosophically. You know, I think uh, helping people be uh, more autonomous, working together on things. I love especially the Web3 aspect of making your earliest users kind of participate in the upside of the platform that they are helping to create. Uh, I think that is, is beautiful. I do think, like especially your search, right? Again, like the, the latency, for instance, is just a problem and needs to be so, so fast for search that now, unfortunately, we can't have all the Web on some blockchain and then just kind of 
query it uh, from that chain and everyone who kind of hosts it benefits from it and, and things like that. There's there's some non-trivial things that we'd still need to figure out and we continue watching it. And then of course, there's the whole you know financial aspect of it. And a lot of these things make a lot of sense, right? If you have a very concrete uh, economic model, like for instance, people pay for internet. Now, if you provide internet through this decentralized uh, you know, system like Helium, then it makes sense to kind of map those existing economics into uh, the Web3 kind of uh, blockchain world. Uh, and then you can you know, be very successful like the Helium network uh, that's based on Solana. Now, I think if in search, for instance, things are a little bit different, right? It's usually the user gets nothing and Google gets everything. And really the economics of search are happening when Google sells your data and your queries to the highest bidding advertiser and not uh, between the user and Google, right? The user just gets like a useful function for free, like maps and Gmail and everything. And they pay sort of behind um, the curtains with their, their personalized data. And then the advertisers are the actual product. And so it's much harder to map search into uh, that world if you don't want to make it based on personalized targeted advertisements. And, and again, I think there's a big difference between private ads that feel much more like a billboard uh, than this hyper-targeting following around the internet. I mean, most people don't know, but it's not just like that Google tracks you on google.com, right? It, it's yeah. not just on YouTube, but it's also on like very private websites that people usually go into incognito mode for even then Google continues to track you uh, on these private sites uh, to understand you better and know how to market to you better. Now, you know, on the one hand, uh, we could talk a lot about privacy. The truth is, while somewhere like, and this is plus minus, depending on the, the survey, 80% of people say they care about privacy, but only 5% of people really act on, on that preference, right? Like most of us are still on Facebook, on Instagram, <laughs> on YouTube, and so on. And, and so the reality is at you.com, when you're in control, we want you to have that personalization and, and convenience uh, that is possible if and when you want it. So we have a one-click switch between personal mode and private mode. And in personal mode, you can still log in. You can set your preferences for the apps that you want to see or not. And you're not completely um, you know, an unknown entity to the, the system. Because the truth is, like, it seems like most people prefer to have some of that convenience rather than extreme forms of privacy, right? At some point, like, billions of people buy stuff on Amazon. Like, well, Amazon will know where to ship your product. So they have your address. And the convenience of them having your address uh, outweighs the, you know, disadvantages of them having your address. And so similarly, you see that with review.com and features you know where we allow you to write essays for instance or write blog posts if you write that's a very expensive ai powered feature large language models takes a lot of uh, money to host that and so on so you can you know swipe your credit card if you want to use that kind of feature a lot um and again you get convenience uh in exchange for for certain capabilities yeah 100 i mean it reminds me of just i forget where i was reading it but no, we it needs to be some middle ground between sovereignty and like none you know not nobody really wants to be living off the grid eating like their own eat, killing animals and stuff like you know there needs to be right. something there needs to be some 
government or whatever structure to take care of us and and or help out and and whatnot. Um, I am curious though. Uh, I checked out your website, just your personal uh, website, and um, saw that two things: um, AIX Ventures um, would love to hear more about your thesis there, and then I also would love to talk travel and photography and just more about kind of your passions outside of work. Yeah, yeah, those are both uh, super fun to talk about. So I, ever since my first acquisition, kind of loved the idea of helping smart people increase their impact uh, in the world. And AI is such an exciting field and there's so many different facets of AI that uh, I just couldn't help but use the money from my first acquisition actually invest in my friends and, and mentor some of my you know former interns and employees and and coworkers and so on uh, and and so yeah I, I started investing a bunch in, in the past and then uh you know there are a bunch of really smart people and so they're doing very well and so I thought maybe we can scale this up and bring in lots of other super smart people uh into this kind of system where we have people who are actually full-time practitioners uh, and we partner them with incredibly smart full-time investors. And so at AIX Ventures, we have a bunch of incredible investing partners, like Peter Abiel is one of the most famous roboticists in the world and professor in Berkeley and a startup founder too of multiple successful startups. And Chris Manning was the most cited NLP researcher in the world. And was actually one of my two doctoral advisors uh, at, at Stanford and Suchi Saria, who's an incredible professor for healthcare and AI at, at Johns Hopkins, and also a startup founder, and Anthony Goldblum, who uh, started Taggle, a really powerful and interesting machine learning community and competition website. And so all of those folks have full-time jobs, but they have all kinds of interesting uh, people that they know also, interesting deal flow, uh, and, and just incredible expertise to help those kinds of companies uh, succeed. And then we, you know, partner that with some incredible uh, full-time folks who are just like actually running, running the fund full-time. And so, so yeah, I, I love the, love that. And it, we've, we've had a lot of success with, with incredible investments uh, like Hugging Face or Weights and Biases or Athela, which is blood measurements and, um, and so on. So yeah, it, it's been a really exciting journey and just fun to see the, the area of AI kind of blow up. And then uh, on photography, I guess I love uh, paramotor photography. Uh, can you say can you say exactly what that means? I'd be happy to. Yeah. So so paramotoring uh, is essentially uh, a propeller backpack uh, that uh, you can strap on your back, and then uh, you have a parachute like wing, uh, you know, slightly different geometry, and then you can fly anywhere. You just fly from uh, like your backyard or a random like public field uh, or anything like that. And, and it's just the best thing ever. Um, and maybe I'll show you just a short video of what, what that looks like. So this is kind of a, a picture of a paramotor. Um, oh, my Instagram. God. Yeah, I just so, Googled that, too. I didn't know this thing existed. This is crazy. You comment. <laughs> yeah. Um, no more Googling. Uh, but yeah. Oh, so it's No, actually, it was on you. But. I oh, nice. it. Yeah. Nice. Yes, yeah. you can Google on you.com. You know, we may have to get comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You should just go into the most amazing places uh, in the yes. world. Uh, here I'm in Iceland and yeah, what? it's uh, here I'm in Utah. Uh, it's just the best thing. And it's so, you know, in comparison to any other form of flight, it's so cheap, uh, but you can go into like the most incredible spots and you can make photos to of, of places that 
probably in that angle, no human had ever been, which is getting pretty hard, right? Like I also love motorcycles, but like if you want to do something novel and interesting on a motorcycle, I mean, you have to damn near kill yourself with like a quadruple backflip at this point. Whereas in a paramotor, you know, even as a hobbyist, uh, you can go into lots of cool spots um, and and experience kind of very unique things. Here I'm in the middle of Arizona in some remote canyon, hadn't seen a human in a long time, there are no hiking paths there, and like a bunch of wild horses all of a sudden, like, and it's just, yeah, it's the best thing ever. I, I love, I love paramotoring and then combining that with photography. That's incredible. Um, so do you usually go solo and how'd you get into it? Also, like, how does somebody like myself get into it? How much do you, money do you need? Or like, how did, this is crazy. I, I didn't yeah. know this existed. Um, so. I, I used to do mountain biking a lot and my mountain biking buddy got into hang gliding where you have a rigid wing, fly a prone, like you're gonna be a lie on your belly. And so I got a little bit, I'm actually afraid of heights, uh, but I believe in fear exposure theory. So yeah. I'm just like exposing myself to it. And it, it worked out a lot better. I'm still sometimes less comfortable up high, which is silly because it's actually safer because you can throw a reserve parachute and stuff. But uh, long story short, I got into hang gliding, then paragliding and then paramotoring. Uh, but you can actually just start uh, directly into paramotoring. <clears throat> I have lots of friends who just go from no flight experience to flying in a paramotor in, in a handful of days. Uh, and so it costs about uh, all in where you get good training, you get good um, uh, sort of instruction and, and all of that. You get certified, you take the theory exams to make sure you and everyone else is safe. Um, and then uh, you buy like some really good high quality gear um, that is, you know, not too heavy, not too light, but very reliable because it's a two-stroke engine, it's like a lawnmower, um, and a good wing that is also new and, and doesn't, you know, have any, any issues and so on. It's very safe wing for your skill level. And so all in, that's maybe $15,000, one five. Um, and, and then once you have that gear, you know, you basically fly for free. It's just gas money uh, at that point. And it's not that much gas. So it's like, you know, one or two gallons get you to fly for an hour plus. Uh, and so it is the cheapest form of, of sort of real aviation um, compared to like the plane or something like that. Um, but, you know, 15K is also still, it's still money. You can get down to maybe 5K, but at that point, you're kind of getting closer and closer to a death wish because, you know, you don't want to have gear that's too old and too unreliable and the wing is porous and, and, and you want to have some good instruction too. And, you know, in, in the U.S., it's kind of crazy, but it is, uh, it is completely unregulated, um, <clears throat> like, or very, there's very little regulation overall, Like you don't need a legal certification to paramotor. You could just watch some YouTube videos and go try trial and error yourself legally. Now I think it's a really terrible idea, and I would encourage everyone to take proper instruction. <laughs> I'm, I'm now a tandem uh, instructor rated uh, pilot just because I read. Really that's amazing. My girlfriend is uh, she's in Switzerland with her family and just went paragliding, and nice. so I got I got to tell her about this. Um, man, I really want to try. Unfortunately, overregulated. And uh, oh, yeah. Swiss allow paramotors um, only if they're electric because of the noise, which is kind of funny because they do allow helicopters. I guess in Switzerland, <laughs> it's rich enough to make your noise. <laughs> yeah. How, how fast are you going when you uh, usually fly like 20 to most 40 miles an hour? You know, this is, it depends on a lot of factors. Like your wing is the biggest factor. And then, of course, there's wind speed, airspeed, and ground speed. So there are different kinds of speed, you know, as you're moving through the wind or over the ground, you have a tailwind and, you know, you add your tailwind to, to your 
uh, that sort of adds to your ground speed and so on. But yeah, somewhere between 20 to 40 miles an hour. Got you. All right. I got a couple of random questions, if that's cool. Um, sure. Favorite books or, or current book that you're reading or just ones that have kind of impacted you as a person, helped you grow um, and, and kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe three three very different ones. Uh, in terms of sort of really hardcore math, um, I really like the convex optimization by Boyd uh, in Runnenberg. Um, it's just so well written for such a heavy subject um, and, and very engaging, good examples, and just a lot of clarity um, and, and just good instruction. Uh, in terms of sort of uh, sci-fi slash just general fiction, I really enjoyed the, the trilogy of the three body problem. Um, it's just so like, especially the later books, um, and the end of, of those, you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty good sequence model of prediction and most movies I'm kind of bored because I feel like they're so predictable and especially, it's especially bad when the previews just tell you the whole story already, <laughs> piece together everything else. But like, uh, the end of the three body problem was so far out in the future that I had never even kind of contemplated what those steps would be right and and it gets you really stoked to learn more about physics again and and just sort of realizing that man we're really quite stuck in in some fundamental things in physics and you know i think ai obviously is the most exciting thing and it has a little bit of ai but it, it, it touches more on the physics and of course as a as a really big believer in ai i do think ai can also help us kind of achieve scientific breakthroughs which is super exciting um, and then in terms of uh, nonfiction that isn't a hardcore math, uh, like complex optimization, um, I really enjoyed uh, a book called From Dawn to Decadence, uh, 500 Years of Western Cultural Life. Uh, it's basically a history book, but instead of the standard history books of like this king fought against this empire and blah, 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 like it's just all the intellectual ideas of like, you know, at what point, in, and it's the last 500 years of basically Europe and the Western world. And, uh, and you know, sort of when was the first salon started or like when did people realize that artist is not just like another craft, but it's its own kind of category of jobs or like when like did it change that Western, the Western world considered women to be more equal. And like all of these really interesting ideas uh, and, and important ideas that shaped uh, all of us. And, you know, obviously it has to talk a lot about religion too and Calvinists and how did it come about that somehow doing well uh, monetarily is like something that has to do with religion and, and your, your chances to go to heaven. And, and, you know, like all these kinds of interesting ideas that influence uh, our, our culture uh, and, and their origins uh, in different different places. It's a really, really engaging book. It's kind of heavy, it's really big, but but just has so many interesting nuggets in it. No, that's amazing. I read The Three-Body Problem, and uh, just as somebody who hadn't looked at physics in six, six years, five, six years, you know, there's a lot of things that I had to, you know, uh, re- calibrate myself with which was cool um and you know I'm an English guy I'm a writer but it's still cool to like learn a little bit learn enough that my my brain can handle um and then yeah I read a book called Americana which was like 500 years of American history which was pretty cool or or just like uh not American but America hasn't been around 500 years but just the whole whole kind of area and like all about capitalism and um that that was that was a cool one learning about like the history of advertising um yeah that was interesting as well just to think about where it's going um 
yeah and then i guess another kind of random question um what do you think is going to be kind of where where ai is going in the next 10 20 30 years and and is the world going to look different are we are we going to figure out some new um cures to diseases and all that good stuff um yeah hopefully cures not not new diseases uh no, you never know it's general yeah. technology um so i uh, actually just posted um a, like a longer tweet about this or thread um i'll i might just pull it up really quick uh but the i think idea right now uh in, in what we will see in the next few years is is more pre-training you know i i published some some papers uh, on, on word vectors before and i think those were super impactful then i thought well how can we increase uh more pre-training and and sort of transfer learning uh between uh these these kinds of tasks and so worked on contextual vectors uh of of you know sentences and and so on and similar ideas have eventually been ex like expanded into computer vision uh, of self-supervised learning and so on in context and then uh, the next level was to basically train these multitask systems where you pre-train not just the encoder, just the contextual encoder, but also the task and the output. And that was kind of started by DECA NLP, a single model to train 10 different tasks in the natural language processing, like translation and summarization, sentiment analysis, and so on. And then inspired kind of these really large language models uh, to just basically incorporate the tasks, but everything's just a sequence, which is even more clever than DECA NLP, which had a separate encoding for the question and the context. But then also all of this sort of um, alignment, uh, and by that I mean basically co-attention uh, that that we just call it, like call it now. And so I think we're going to see more progress on that in the next couple of years by mapping different uh, modalities into that same space. And this is something we've explored also ten years ago, where we map image vectors and sentence vectors into the same space, and then you can find one from the other and, and describe images through sentences. Then uh, after that, I think we'll try to merge even more complex things together, train massive combined models uh, for language and video and sound, so bring in more temporal sequences. I think interesting stuff will happen if we then add programming code into that mix, and then all of a sudden you can you know, ask it to do something about all of these modalities. Um, that isn't just based on a textual description, but maybe can actually execute um, more complex uh, instructions over that kind of data. And that, I think, will be a very, very powerful combination of sort of uh, reasoning that is discrete and fuzzy. You know, right now we have massive models with billions of uh, parameters and floating point operations. But if you ask any of these models a complex uh, arithmetic question, it still fail at it, you know, it's kind of hilarious, but like you ask it like, oh, what's 37.8 divided by 15.73? And it will do billions of floating point, uh, like multiplications and matrix multiplication and so on, but it will not be able to give you back the right answer. Uh, and so that kind of combination of logical and set theoretic and algorithmic reasoning and fuzzy reasoning where everything's kind of continuous and, um, a little bit more, you know, data-driven uh, and correlation-based. The merging of these two fields will be super impactful, uh, and then we could eventually pre-train models <clears throat> with good simulations and actual real-world uh, grounding. 
And then since you ask for 10 to 20, it gets, it gets harder and harder to predict the future. And a lot of people who exude a lot of confidence, I think I have usually been shown to be wrong. It's just that 30 years later, no one is like, remember this guy who said 20 years ago that we're going to have like flying cars by now? Well, he was wrong. Ha ha. You know, it's like, ah, whatever, you know, so no one gets really penalized for making bad predictions uh, in the far distant future. So people keep enjoying it. People keep reading about it and being inspired or, or you know, scared about it. Um, but <clears throat> I think some of these are fairly um, fairly safe uh, to make. Uh, but again, the error bars get larger as uh, in, for your predictions the further out to go into the future. But I think one thing is clear to me that to make that happen, you know, you may have to work on it yourself. But after all this pre-training, um, the next level we have to zoom out from is to actually let the AI choose what it is actually optimizing for. Uh, and that is kind of the, the technical terms, objective functions or, or goals, uh, and, and let the AI kind of choose what that should be. Right now, all these AI systems are just making a very specific uh, objective function better. And that objective function is usually like for large language models that will generate text and, and so on. It's just predict the next word. And that, you know, they have no desire to say anything in particular. They're just trying to, you know, minimize maximize uh, some loss function or maximize the probability of getting the right word correctly um, that comes after. And so I think we have to kind of really creatively start thinking about what could objective functions be for AI to train it in a way that it can get better and better over time. And, you know, people say, well, it's survival, but I don't think that actually makes sense um, for, uh, for real AI systems, because unlike biological life, you know, you don't have to come constantly fight for reproduction and fight for resources uh, with, with competing uh, factions and, and the environment and so on. You could just be connected to a massive solar panel and float around in space forever. And, and so you don't need to constantly be, be fighting for it and then get sort of um, evolutionarily find your niche and, and exploit that niche uh, and so on. So I think there, there are other interesting ways but we're we're gonna. I don't know how, how long you want my answer to be, so I'll, I'll stop here because it gets it gets further and further into sci-fi and kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's super exciting. Um, I followed some of it. <laughs> no, my my brain was. Uh, whew, um, I got to <laughs> read the thread. Uh, definitely a visual guy, but yeah, I think those were those were all the main questions. Um, and I uh, I appreciate your time, man, and appreciate that you're. You're building a project that is, you know, a digital public good. Um, actually, yeah, I'm writing an essay about that right now and got to include you. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, uh, thank you so much. Really thank appreciate you. your yeah, time. It's great. it's great to get the word out. And, you know, the whole internet is going to take, like, everything in the economy is moving online and onto the internet. And so it's very important that that entryway is not a gatekeeper that just wants to sell you to the highest bidding advertiser as your main model, but it is a more collaborative uh, place and platform for, for people to work on together. So, so yeah, really excited about it also. And thanks so much for your time. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, wow, one last thought. Uh, I just had a conversation with somebody talking about how like virtual worlds are almost like campfires or their own world. And you is almost like the entrance to the different worlds. Um, and that entrance should be a friendly one, not, not a scary one where you're getting hazed by ads. So, <laughs> but all right, all right. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.